Hello everybody and welcome to Kickback, your global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. You can subscribe to the show via Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. If you like what we do, leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook or send an email to info at icrnetwork.org. Welcome to this episode of Kickback. This time we're really happy to welcome Christina Bicchieri. She's the S.J. Patterson Harvey Professor of Social Thought and Comparative Ethics at UPenn. And the interview with her touches on a range of topics related to social norms in general, how they relate to corruption, and how they can be used to fight corruption. Enjoy. So welcome everyone to the new episode of Kickback. Today I'm very honored to be speaking with Christina Bicchieri, one of my academic heroes. I'm really thankful that you took your time. And to kick us off, I wanted to ask you, Christina, if you could tell the audience a little bit about how you became interested in corruption. Because if I am correct, you published your first work in the mid-90s on corruption. Yes. At a time where corruption research wasn't that hip as it is today. True. So I how did it. you become interested? Well, there has been uh, earlier uh, work on corruption, corruption especially in the developing world as if corruption is just <laughs> happening there. And uh, I was very, very surprised, actually, in 1992, when the big bribing scandal, you know, took over Italy, basically, the so-called manipulator. And uh, I was surprised, uh, not because I didn't think that there was, uh, like, small local corruption, but because uh, it showed that it was a systemic problem. And uh, I decided to work with a physicist, a friend of mine, and uh, we wrote uh, my first paper on corruption, uh, Evolution and Revolution, mm -hmm. <laughs> the Dynamic of Corruption, where we look at how a system which is stable, in this case we have a stable corrupt system, can suddenly become unstable and we use catastrophe theory and it's very interesting because when a system moves from stable to unstable it may not collapse but because it is unstable there is a positive probability that it will collapse and it doesn't take much for it to collapse and so we were looking at the passage from stability to instability which is exactly what happened in Italy. And uh, I was very interested not only in the dynamics of corruption, but uh, looking at cases of corruptions that have been studied also in the United States, because there was a lot of local corruption mm -hmm. in uh, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia government, etc. They're very famous for being very, very corrupt. I worked with an economist, John Duffy. This is my second paper on corruption, about how corruption can become cyclical. So there were lots of examples of corruption that ended you know, for political reasons, etc., but then it re-emerged 
a few years later. So these are my beginning steps with corruption. And what answers did you find to the question, why corruption is so sticky? Well, uh, corruption is so sticky, there are different types of corruption. Uh, in the case of uh, the Duffy article, we were looking especially at political corruption. And it is sticky because, uh, you know, especially local city politics in that case, okay, in order to be re-elected, in order to have power, they had to buy this power. And how do you buy the power? By giving jobs and so on and so forth. So it was a, a sort of embedded, a system of incentives embedded in the, the search and how to obtain political power. And these were both theoretical works, right? And they were theoretical, but they were uh, they were also inspired by reality. Yes. And when we studied Italy too, if you look at uh, you know the political power of parties that actually were destroyed by Mani Pulite, the Christian Democrats and the Socialist Party, there were exactly parties that work on clientele. So basically the local politician, either socialist or Christian Democrats, were very much linked to a system of, you know, providing jobs in, in exchange for votes. So it was a quite corrupt system, also, you know, uh, providing contracts, government contracts, in exchange uh, for a percentage. So if the contract was worth 10, in reality, you know, it, it became 20 or 30, and there was a kickback for the government, and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, apparently, this is what's happening again. Yes. And so your work has then also tried to empirically test these assumptions with, with your very influential research on social norms. Right. Could you maybe tell the audience a little bit about your main distinction and your main theoretical framework that you develop, which has now inspired a lot of empirical work that yes. tried to test these corruption cycles? Uh, yes. Uh, um, my work on social norms is a work on behavior in general. Okay, and the first big dividing line is between behavior that are unconditional and behaviors that are conditional. What is an unconditional behavior? Is a behavior that is not socially motivated by the kind of expectation we normally have about how other people in your reference network, you know, behave, what they think is appropriate or not, etc. So if a behavior, and this is very important for applied research, because once you identify a target behavior, you want to know what's the nature of this behavior. And the first big dividing line is conditional and unconditional. If it is unconditional, for example, let's think of child marriage, which I have dealt with. In child marriage, you have to decide, is it a religious Okay, mandate is a religious injunction. Is it an ethical injunction? So you feel that ethically you have to protect your daughter by marrying her very young, etc. You are a terrible parent if you don't do that. Or it could be socially conditional. And what does it mean socially conditional? It means that your preference for that behavior depends on the kind of social expectation you have. And 
Sometimes, uh, you know, the social expectations are purely what I call empirical, descriptive. What other people do really matters. You want to be like other people. And sometimes uh, they are also normative. You care about what other people approve, disapprove of, what they think of you, etc., etc. So the first big dividing line is... Uh, behavior which is conditional or unconditional. How do I measure that? The measurement is a crucial step. And all the work I do is based on measure I developed. So the first measure is you look at people's behavior. What do they do? Do they marry in this village? Do they marry their children when they are 11, 12, 13 or not? And how many do that? The second is their factual beliefs. What do they believe about that? Okay. The third is their normative beliefs, which doesn't mean they are social. So I am a good father if I protect my daughter because I believe she will be raped if you know she goes to school alone at 11 years old and so on and so forth. So we measure all these things. And then we measure the social expectations. Okay. So what you think most people in your village, let's say your village, to give you a simple example, do, what do you think they approve, disapprove of, and so on and so forth. Now, all this is good, but still it doesn't tell me what causes the behavior. So what I measure is the conditionality of preference based on the type of social expectations. They may be unconditional, or they may be conditional. How I measure that? Well, there are two big measures. One is statistical. Okay, I see basically uh, the correlation there is uh, between the acting in a particular way and the kind of expectations you have, and if these expectations predict the behavior. Second, I do vignettes. Okay, and vignettes are very important. Because, first of all, the vignette does not represent you. I don't ask you what you would do, because there is enormous experimental effect. But I represent a person who's very similar to you, coming from a village similar to yours, etc. And this person goes and lives in another place, quite similar. And what happens is I modify, I, I tinker, with the expectations. So the way this would look like, correct me if I'm wrong, would be a short description of someone who is similar to myself, engaging in a certain behavior, and then you assess whether they think that this behavior is acceptable and how common it is. Uh, no, I don't care whether they think it's okay. acceptable or not. Uh, I already know that from the previous uh, survey. What I ask, think of uh, bribing uh, the police. Okay, so there is a situation in which uh, this person encounters, is in a place where most people bribe the police, but on the other hand, he realizes that most people disapprove of bribing. And then I ask, when this person finds himself or herself in a situation where the police ask for a bribe, what do you think this person will do? And so I play positive, uh, empirical, negative, normative, negative, empirical, positive, normative, etc. And I give different people, of course, different combinations. And then I measure whether these expectations matter to behavior and which matter most. And you and other economists have then devised a, a method to then incentivize the accuracy. Right? At times, people are not just 
and let's say cheap talking about what they think, but also you give them at times and always when I ask about empirical and normative expectation, normative is second order beliefs. It's not my personal belief about what's right or wrong, but my belief about what other people in my reference network think. Well they know I have measured the empirical and normative uh, the empirical and the personal belief of everybody else. And therefore, I incentivize, I say, well, if you give me, I have the numbers here, if you give me an accurate answer, uh, you get a price. Now, the price typically is telephone time, because uh, for various reasons, for many organizations that allow you to pay people, and uh, therefore, you can use maybe tools, or you can give, uh, in India, for example, everybody has a phone, <laughs> they like to get phone time in Africa too. And so, because you have worked with UNICEF and other uh, applied organizations, yeah. and one of the main findings when it comes to corruption seems to be that often it is not so much a matter that people think that others find corruption acceptable, but that it's much more a matter of the empirical beliefs, that they think that others are doing it too. Absolutely. And this can lead to what some people refer to as a social trap, right? People are sort of trapped in an environment where everybody around them engages in corruption, even though themselves and maybe even the reference network disapproves of it. Absolutely. It is very common. And could you maybe talk a little bit about, maybe do you have a success story of where either a group of people, a village, society has escaped this social trap. I, I give you an example because what we think of corruption, first of all, often is not what the people, the target people think of corruption. And an example is Nigeria. We are working in Nigeria And, uh, you know, Nigeria has uh, different forms of what we call corruption. For example, the clinics are supposed to be free, okay? So if a woman is pregnant and wants to give birth, you know, she can go to a clinic and she, she's, it's hoped, hoped that she will go to a clinic and be taken care for free. This never happens. So they have to pay the doctor, to pay the nurses. It's all pay, pay, pay. Otherwise, uh, you will be the last in line and probably give birth on the street. Schools, education, same story. People pay teachers. Okay. Now, when we ask uh, uh, people about these practices, they justify them. They say doctor, nurses, teachers have very little pay from the government, which is true. Sometimes the government doesn't pay for months, which is true. And therefore, basically what we call corruption is uh, a provision of a public good that people have to provide because the government is not doing its job. So they never think of that as corruption. What they think of corruption, and they hate it, is police corruption. So in Nigeria, you if you go to Nigeria, you will be stopped for sure on the road and be asked for no reason, but they find a reason, and they, you will be asked to pay a bribe. And if you say, sorry, I don't, and here is the important point, they say, okay, then you go, this is fine, you go like 200 kilometers to the nearest place, you go there, And uh, you pay the bribe. And so, of course, people don't want to do that and pay 
Okay. And so this is perceived as corruption, correctly. But the most interesting thing is the corruption is a norm within the police. Mm-hmm. And it's enforced, therefore. It's completely enforced within that institution. Okay. Right. If you are a young police person, you you accompany the older one in these uh, travels, let's say, and you learn how to behave. Right. And could you maybe tell our audience a little bit what do you think would happen if you do not adhere to this norm? What would be typical social sanctions? Oh, you, you, will, be, uh, you will be sanctioned uh, within the police. Probably, uh, you know, they will ostracize you. They would put uh, in the lowest paying job there is, uh, and so on and so forth. You know, it's, uh, it's very dangerous not to comply with a group norm. I found really interesting your research in Nigeria um, where you did large surveys all throughout yes, and did. you find heterogeneity, so differences across the country when it comes to certain practices. But one finding um, that I remember is, for example, people expect women to be in some forms of corruption less corrupt. Oh, absolutely. This is very interesting. Yes. Like, let's talk about political corruption. So somebody becomes... Uh, this is the same uh, in uh, Kenya and Tanzania. So a man uh, gets uh, a political position, even a low-level political position. These are very communitarian societies. So the man comes typically from a village, so has a, a large group of relatives. And uh, this man is expected to be corrupt to accept bribes because he will help family and friends. So there is uh, this transfer, if you will, of uh, money, of favors, of giving jobs, etc., etc., to, you know, the people that are his family, friends, relatives, etc. So a man is expected to do that, and there is a strong sanctioning system for people who don't do that. So you are expected to be a good community member and use your newly acquired position to favor your family in any possible way. So it is interesting because I didn't perceive a negative judgment on these men who then help all of his family. It's very interesting that the judgment on a woman is totally different. So a woman who does that, probably because women are married and are provided for by the husband, and so a woman is not expected to be corrupt. And if she is, the judgment is she's really a greedy person. She's a very negative human being, even if she may do the same thing that a man do. That's fascinating findings. It's crazy. So... You've been working on corruption for many decades now. Has your view on corruption changed in these years? And if so, in, in which regards? Yes. Well, the Nigeria example is one great example because what we scholars may think is corruption, you know, may not be perceived as such by people. And what I find it very interesting is that in societies where there is a practice, a long-standing practice of gift exchanges, corruption is a sort of continuation of that. Okay? Because if, you know, 
I want a favor from you and I give you a small gift and in exchange, you know, uh, you give me what I try to obtain, etc. First of all, this is never perceived as corruption. It's perceived as a nice exchange. Okay? And being an exchange, it's fine. It doesn't detract from anybody else. That's what people think. Okay, so the, the first thing that uh, I realized looking at all these different cases is that uh, whenever there is a tradition of gifted change, okay, in a society, then there is going to be corruption, what we call corruption, that people don't perceive at all as corruption. The second thing I noticed, and we noticed it doing some experiment, is that uh, when, uh, you know, you do an experiment and uh, let's say there are three people, the corruptor, the bribee, and a third person, which may be a group, a person, society, that uh, suffer from that. Okay, you know, so we have... It's a negative external. Great. So we have a briber, a bribee, and a victim, let's and say. And a victim. Okay. Now, what we noticed is that if the victim is identified as a single person, there will be a certain restraint in bribing because you can identify the victim. Whenever the victim is a group or society, there is zero restraint. So it's an abstract entity we don't care because it's like saying, okay, you tell me I damage society. A society is a very large unit, okay, whom I am really damaging with my little bribe, okay, so I, it gives me food for thought that maybe when we want to stress negative externalities, which are usually not stressed, okay, this is one thing that I would recommend, stressing the negative externality, you have to personalize them, you have to give example of people that will pay more taxes, you know, this poor person will have to pay more taxes because these such and such things are happening. I think this is, uh, is what strikes people. But not thinking in general of society or abstract concepts, no. So the, the, if I rephrase that slightly, what you're saying is if we can make this abstract notion of the society and translate that into an identifiable victim, and the chances that people might feel guilty, might be restrained, Absolutely. are much higher. Yes. And that seems to be a very interesting angle where behavioral science can inform policy, where we can somehow try to translate the negative effects that corruption has into something that people might experience in the situation where they make that decision. Absolutely. And uh, there are two issues here. On the one hand, you create a negative externality for somebody that can be identified in some sense, but they also create negative externality for you. So you must realize that other people behave like you and you will suffer for that. So it's a two-way... It is essentially a a social dilemma to some extent. Oh yes, um, absolutely, absolutely. And what I found really inspiring about your work is that it helped to understand why some classical policies that were aimed to reduce corruption failed, right? Because they did not take this social embeddedness of the practice. They did not take the social norms of corruption into account. Do you maybe have one or two examples where this was very obvious to you, where you felt from your perspective, well, it's clear why this is not working? Uh, uh, The punitive approach, okay? Uh, So we punish corruption 
with imprisonment, big fines, etc., etc. Does it deter corruption? No. <laughs> Unless you punish in exemplary ways, constantly monitoring, constantly, etc., which is absolutely expensive, super expensive and impossible. So this is not a good way. Okay, the punitive way is not very effective for various reasons that I mentioned. So the best way is really to change people's understanding of what the phenomenon is, how they themselves are affected, and how they affect others. This is, this is my idea. The typical, also another reason why certain intervention may not work. One thing is the punitive intervention doesn't work very well. We know that. And the other is giving people information about corruption can be very dangerous. Okay. Could you tell a little bit more about it? <laughs> yes, because if I broadcast information about, you know, how not only how negative corruption is, but how many people are corrupt, in a sense, I give people license to be corrupt too. Okay. Also, this is one one reason why empirical messages may backfire. Another typical message that may backfire is a normative moralizing message. Okay, corruption is bad, you should not be corrupt, etc. Because what do people read behind these messages? If you have to tell me that this is bad, I shouldn't do that, it means a lot of people do it. So, behind the message, there is always some inference that people make, and you have to pay attention. Uh, that's that's very, very interesting, and I think very relevant for all of those who seek to engage in anti-corruption, to be very careful with what you put on these message boards, because it Absolutely. can indeed lead to Absolutely. backfiring effects, it can lead to cynicism. Being in an office where it says, do not bribe, and constantly bribery is going on, it can lead to people becoming, well, cynical about these oh, messages. Right? People do become cynical, so yes. So, in your book, uh, your recent book, Norms in the Wild, you acknowledge a person that I also personally find very inspiring. His name is Antanas Mokus, and he was the former mayor of Bogota. And he has engaged in a lot of, I would say, thought-provoking and innovative ways how to change social norms. Now, I know that you know him personally yes, also. Yes. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about his work and maybe your favorite anecdote with him? Uh, well, he invited me. I, I got to meet him because he invited me to talk about social norm in Bogota almost 20 years ago. <laughs> so a long time ago. And uh, when I was there... Uh, I was very curious what you have done for Bogota, etc. And uh, he gave me a lot of examples of uh, what he did. And he's an extremely creative guy. I'll give you an example. In Bogota, traffic was absolutely horrendous. And there were a lot of deaths. So people that, uh, you know, bicycle or walk... Uh, you know, were killed by cars that go like very fast, etc. And so what he did, he hired a group of mimes that, mimes, right? yes, yeah. that yeah. went around with green or red messages. The green is a thumb up, the red is a thumb down. And what he understood is that 
Colombian people are very, like many other people, but they, they are particular. <laughs> they are very sensitive to how people think of them. Okay? And so, very soon, all the drivers wanted a thumb up. <laughs> okay? They really strive to get this thumb up and to be seen with the thumb up, etc. And so, this reduced enormously traffic problems in Bogota. Okay, so he thought not just uh, of, uh, you know, how to intervene, but how to intervene given people mentality, if you will, given the people preferences, and, uh, you know, what would change their behavior, what was likely to change their behavior. Same thing with firearms. This is another very interesting example. Why? It is an example of how to use the law in a way that doesn't go against social norms. Now, there is a lot of work which has been done, very interesting in my view. You know that typically one thing to do uh, to change behavior is to enact a law that prohibits that behavior. And there is a lot of research about why such laws may be very ineffective may even lower the trust that people have in their government. Marcus understood that very well. Now, what is the norm in Colombia is that people go around with guns. Very normal. You know, they can buy guns freely, they go around with guns. So what happened during the weekend? They go to the bars, they quarrel, they boom, boom, <laughs> they kill each other. So he wants to lower the level of violence. And so what he did, he prohibited the use of weapons during weekends only. And this is something that people could accept because they were not deprived of their weapons, but they could not use them in the, at the time and the places where, you know, they would cause really enormous damage. And it was very successful. Again, and this is an example how, you know, this uh, sort of legal injunction doesn't go completely against the social norm. The norm is that we want to bear arms, fine, but not in this particular, uh, you know, time frame. I think this is... A, it was very smart. Yes, I totally agree. And I think it's a great example of how the the legal interventions need to be embedded in the social context. And therefore, it, it is important to first understand what the norms are. And I think your research is... Absolutely. ...very inspiring in how to do that. Yes. And then to maybe design interventions that are suitable for this particular context. And I think this sort of also speaks to the idea that there is not the silver bullet against corruption, that you can just take this intervention that worked here and apply it like one-to-one -one in another context. And I think I think it was also you who said that the interventions that might have worked in Bogota, they might not work somewhere else because Absolutely. the Absolutely. social norms might be completely different. People might react to the same creative interventions that worked in Bogota completely differently. Absolutely. Yeah. This is a problem with nudges because very often they think that a nudge that has worked in one context will work in others. And uh, more often than not, this doesn't happen. And the question is, uh, why it doesn't work? And my answer is, well, did you really study the motivations of the target people 
that you know you want to change their behavior, why they behave in that particular way, what's behind their behavior. Okay, and usually this is not done because it takes time. You know, you have to do some surveys, you have to look more carefully at behavior and the mechanism that produce it because you have to change something there. That's a, I think that's a perfect way to end this interview. I think uh, the importance of understanding the context in which Absolutely. behavior occurs directly applies to corruption as well. I think it's very important to understand, like you say, the why behind a corrupt practice in order to then maybe eventually come up with ways to change it. Yes. Absolutely. I And agree. what we usually do at the at the end of the interviews, we ask you for um, the pick of the podcast. That means like if you have a book, a movie, Uh, paper, anything that you would recommend for our audience that is interested in a, either corruption in general, but it could also be somewhat unrelated. So if you have, for example, a movie where you feel like this one might be interesting for everybody who cares about social norms, this is the time. Well, I think... Uh Uh, on, on the one hand, uh, uh, I shouldn't say my book, but... <laughs> oh, well, for sure. I think it is. <laughs> but uh, it, I think... It covers pretty much everything uh, My that we latest about. book, uh, uh, which is called Norms in the Wild, uh, by the way, it has been translated in Spanish, and uh, it had quite a big success in Latin America. Ah, interesting. And it's called Navigar Contra de la Corriente. Okay. Okay. To navigate against the, the current, yeah. against the flow, which is a better title for that audience, uh, is all about what are social norms, how we measure them, and in particular how to change them. Because there has been an enormous amount of work about how changing behavior, and I try to analyze uh, different things, uh, different ways to change behavior. One thing that uh, I would suggest people look at, and is not usually done, is look at soap operas, okay? And there is a soap opera that I suggest people look at because it's an example of an excellent behavioral change uh, intervention, even if it was not designed to be a behavioral change intervention, and it's called Simplemente Maria, and Simply Maria, and is a story of this girl in Peru who, from abject poverty, you know, she makes uh, a decent life for herself, and it's very interesting because it has some elements that are crucial in this type of intervention, media intervention, is, first of all, people can identify with her, Okay, people like her can identify with her. Second, she goes through a lot of hurdles that people can expect to encounter, but then she comes out successful. And uh, third is my belief, actually, is my last thought, that one of the most important interventions, also because it's scalable, is using soap operas. Great. What a better way to end uh, the interview than uh, with soap operas. I think this is very, uh, very fascinating. Thanks a lot again for taking the time. And um, yeah, this was the interview with Christina Bucchieri. Thank you very much. <laughs>